Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Suhar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, the word of the Lord. 
In John chapter 4, which we're looking at this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of John, a woman meets Jesus at a well in Samaria. She's doing just fine, and then Jesus gets really personal with her. He challenges everything she believes in, he confronts her about her life, and then he shows her real love, probably for the first time in her life. So we're going to look at John 4, see what it tells us about who Jesus is and what he's offering not just this woman, but also us. So the setting is this, the setting we get in the first couple of verses uh, that we had read by John just a second ago by Jonathan, uh, we get that Jesus had to pass through the area of Samaria. He was near a town called Sychar and sat down at Jacob's well about the sixth hour. It was about noon, and a woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So what we have in this kind of setting is we have Samaria, we have a well, and we have a woman. So the first is the Samaritans. If you've been in church, you've heard some of these descriptions, but if you haven't, let me go ahead and give them to you. If somebody was a Samaritan they were a part of the minority in a kind of Jewish majority culture. And in that region of Palestine, the Samaritans lived in a particular place. Historically, Samaritans were people who were a part of the Babylonian exile hundreds of years earlier when there was intermarriage, forced intermarriage between the Babylonians and the Jews. So that meant that what the Jewish people considered the, the children that were born to these half-Samaritans, half, or half-Babylonians, half-Jewish people to be Samaritan half-breeds. They, they were not true Jewish people. They were an inferior race. And on top of this, over the course of a couple hundred years, they developed a syncretistic religion where they practiced Judaism sort of, but also brought in a lot of the pagan practices of Babylon. So their religion was heretical and it was false, and they were racially inferior. If you were a Jewish person in that day and age, going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north or the other way around, you had to go through Samaria was the most direct route sometimes, but a faithful Jew would not go through Samaria in order to keep pure and to protect themselves because the divisions were pretty strong. So a faithful Jew would walk further around, maybe even a whole day or two further to avoid going through the regions of Samaria. But Jesus goes right through, of course. On top of this, we know from rabbinic writings of the time that anything that a Samaritan touched was considered unclean. So if a Samaritan sat on a chair, you could not then sit on it without being unclean yourself. It was a defiled chair. If a Samaritan used a plate or a cup, you could not then use it, even if it was uh, many days later or if it had been washed, because it was unclean, it was defiled, and for you to use it would be to make yourself religiously unclean and defiled. This was, the Samaritans lived in a very segregated world. It was segregated much like America was decades ago, where you lived over there and we live over here. The water fountains are for these people and not for those people. And they lived that constantly. The recognition that they were under the Jewish people who were under Rome, and they were inferior, and they were outsiders and outcasts. So we're in Samaria, and then we're at a well, if you study ancient culture, you will find pretty quickly that wells were an important part of the ancient world. We know that most cities or villages or towns were built along rivers or near lakes because you had to have water, right? Water's pretty necessary. 
In that arid and desert-like land of Palestine in the Middle East, often you didn't have access to a river or to a lake, so you would dig a well. The Jacob's well near Sakar was over 100 feet deep today, so it could have been even deeper back in that um, ancient culture. But wells were incredibly vital for the survival of any people in that, in that day and age. And on top of that, they had a, a role to play in the community. So they were a part of the community's central hub, and they were a place where any traveler went. If you were traveling in that culture, you didn't just stop off at a 7-Eleven. You couldn't just hit up the local gas station on your travels. Your survival from place to place meant going from water source to water source. So you would travel from well to well. And as a village, to be able to host people, to provide water for their animals or on their travels, gave honor and status to your village. You wanted to be the hospitable village. So here we are, this, this well in Samaria, and, and it's a place where not just uh, travelers came, but it was also, of course, central to the community itself. And what we know from uh, other studies on this is that what would generally happen is in the morning, and you've heard this if you've heard stories or sermons on John chapter 4, is often the women or servants would go out in the mornings to get water from the well and bring it back for the day. They would go out to get water for the well because it was a necessity, but it was also a, a cultural community event. You would go out as a community, catch up on the news of the day, and you also went out as a community, especially of women, to keep yourself safe in case there were travelers that were out there. You would go as a community out and you would come back. It was a central hub to the entire community and especially for groups of women. It was their way of connecting with one another. You didn't go to coffee, you went to the well in the mornings. But we get this woman, and she comes to the well at the middle of the day. And of course, if you've heard sermons on this, you know this, but if you don't, if she was coming in the middle of the day, she was not going when all the other women went. Every other woman in her culture had gone in the morning, and she's coming in the middle of the day. So we're meant to ask why. Why was she coming in the middle of the day? There's one of two reasons. The first is that she's an outcast amongst the women in her village. She has a bad reputation. So if we think about this, this woman probably, by all indications, is an outcast in her own village. And she lives amongst a marginalized, despised people. She is an outcast amongst the marginalized. Even the people who are despised despise her. She is the ultimate outsider. And this is the exact opposite of what we saw last week in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, who is a rabbi, a ruler of the entire community, a, probably the most, one of the most powerful and influential men in the, whole, in the whole nation. Nicodemus is the ultimate insider. This woman is the ultimate outsider. So one reason why she comes to the well in the middle of the day is because she is an outcast. The other reason why she might have come in the middle of the day she was looking for travelers. She was knowing that that was the time of day when people who were traveling from place to place might come through and stop at a well on their way to somewhere else. And she was hoping, potentially, to meet the sort of men who might show up in the middle of the day traveling. Jesus sees her coming down. When she gets close, he says something to her The second half, or the, in verse 7. Give me a drink. Now, in ancient Jewish cultures, for the sake of remaining pure and, and not having the 
um, looking like you're indiscreet. There were rules about men and women's interactions in public, both for the sake of the, the woman and for the sake of the man. If you were not related to somebody, it was forbidden to speak or have a conversation one-on-one -on -one with somebody you were not related to. It was considered shameful and inappropriate. And there's one rabbinic writing that says, it gives a description of what a man is supposed to do if a woman approaches like a, a well. What he should have done when he saw the woman coming, Jesus should have taken, according to rabbinic writing, taken 20 steps the other way and kept his back to her while she went and drew the water in order to keep the appropriate distance and maintain both of their kind of identities, if you would, in the public sphere. He should have gotten up and walked away. But Jesus doesn't. He talks to her, talks directly to her. Give me some water. And you have to think about this. This is a woman who, if she was the outcast that it seems like she was, went through day after day without anyone talking to her. She's in a village, and village culture was very much a small fishbowl culture. Everyone knew that she would have been the outsider in their community. No one would have talked to her. She could have gone days without somebody else talking to her. And Jesus, right away, talks to her. In that moment, he's actually giving her dignity. He's elevating her value. He's saying, you are worth me talking to. You matter. I'm here, I see you, and I want to know you. And on top of that, he asks for water. In that culture, to be able to provide hospitality for somebody else meant that you were elevated in the community. It was a thing of honor to host somebody for dinner, to provide for them, whether it was water or a meal or a place to stay. If you were a host, it was actually hosts were reserved for the highest people in the village, in the community. You got to host somebody, especially a rabbi. Jesus elevates her to a place of honor by expressing a need that she can then provide in that culture of hospitality. So he gives her dignity and he elevates her in honor. But she doesn't read it that way. She says instead this phrase in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, what's going on here is two things. One is that division of male, of, uh, of Jewish and Samaritan division. She's highlighting that. Like, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We're not supposed to talk. Remember, I, I'm the hated race. Why are you talking to me? But underneath it is an emphasis on the male and female differences. What she actually says, it's, it's emphasizing the, the male pronouns and the female pronouns. She, she says not just you a Jew, but you a Jewish male would speak to me, and she uses the feminine, a woman, says it again, and a Samaritan, and the word Samaritan she uses is the feminine again. So she's basically saying, you're a man-man, and I'm a woman-woman. What's going on here? What do you really want? I know why you're by yourself at the well. I've been here before. I know why you want a drink from a woman like me. You're not really looking for water, are you? She's being very provocative, flirtatious. The banter is there. She's trying to elevate it and see if she can get something out of this. But Jesus doesn't respond in the way that she thinks because Jesus is not like every other man she had ever dealt with. 
As one New Testament scholar put it, summarizing the entire interaction in John chapter 4, Jesus is not like every other man. He writes, through the entire conversation, Jesus deals with the Samaritan woman as a person in her own right, with her unique history and special longings. She emerges in the account as a credible character with personal dignity because Jesus treats her as such. Simply put, Jesus loved her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. Why are you asking this of me? And Jesus won't press into the way she's talking about it. He says, look, if you knew who I, who I am, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink of water because I would give you living water. And she says, give me this water. She wants to know more about it. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, of this well, will be thirsty again, just pragmatically speaking. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is using the metaphor of thirsting for water to talk about something else. And of course, in that culture, it was a dry land. Water was absolutely necessary. We know this. You can go weeks without eating. You cannot go weeks without drinking water. Some of you have dealt with incredible thirst before. You've been a day or more potentially without water. I never have. I've, never, I've only known like, oh, it's hot out. I played something or I hiked and I'm, I'm really thirsty. I want some water. But in that culture, every single person would have known what it meant to be deathly thirsty, in need of water or you will die. So when Jesus says, I'll give you living water, you'll never, you'll never lack. It was something that was very, very much a part of their survival and their instinct in them. Oh, I want this. And what Jesus is doing is he's using a critical physical need, water, in order to point to a deeper and spiritual one. What you really need is not what you think you need. And where are you looking for the things you think you need? She says, I want some of this water. Jesus then gets confrontational when he says, why don't you go call your husband? And the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, that's right. I know that. You don't have a husband. You've had five of them. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. There's a little wordplay going on in the Greek here that Jesus is actually using. Uh, the, the word man and husband are the same term. Okay? And so uh, commentators note that there's a wordplay going on here where what Jesus is actually saying is, uh, you have no husband, you've had five men, five men, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. You've had six men, well, you're with the six now, and none of them are your husband. You're a serial fornicator. In a culture where it was very clear that there was no sleeping around, he's pressing in on her. But you know, he's not doing so in order to, to slam her. You have to remember, Jesus is constantly interacting with people at their greatest, uh, their greatest brokenness. He's pressing into their sinfulness, but doing so with great compassion. We would look at it and be like, oh man, he told her off. 
But I think what Jesus is doing is pressing into what's behind why she's doing what she's doing. What had she endured in life? What sort of losses? You know, there's no mention of a husband or a brother in this woman's life. In that culture, you either had a husband or a brother or a father to protect and provide for you. It was just the way the culture was done. None of that is mentioned. Did she lose them when she was young? What sort of abuse had she dealt with? What sort of loss? How had her dreams as a 12 or 13-year-old been dashed? How had they been dashed by men in her life? How broken was she at this point so that she's turning again and again to men for security, for identity, for hope, for love? Jesus in this moment is exposing her He's exposing her secrets and her shame in order to get to her heart. And one of the things I want us to see, if you go and read through John 4 again on your own, is Jesus' primary style is not condemning, it's wooing. And yet, he does a combination almost always of truth and love. We talk about that, but we really don't do one or the other very well. He is full of truth and full of love with the people he interacts with, including this woman. Think about the love that he shows her from the beginning. He gives her dignity, talking to her, elevating her with honor, saying, I need you to provide hospitality to me. But he's also very honest with her. Tell me about the men in your life. What are you trusting? Why are you doing this? He doesn't shy away from things that he knows are true and wrong. And yet, in the end, he's really not trying to condemn her. He's trying to offer her hope, life, love. I think for any of us, it's the warning that Jesus is not whoever you want him to be. It's not just, oh, I like to think about Jesus this way. Jesus confronts sin. He's very honest about it. There's a standard, and he confronts it. But he also constantly calls the outcast and the sinner. He's compassionate, full of love opening his arms to the most broken, the most sinful, the most needy. You know what Jesus doesn't say to the woman? He doesn't say to her, stop prostituting yourself. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. Now, look, the Bible is clear on that. The Bible is very clear on sex. And Jesus pushed it even a step further in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's not like Jesus was softening the rules on these things. He's pressing them even harder. But that wouldn't have worked on her. (laughs) She'd heard it. She knew that she was an outcast because of her lifestyle. And so even as he starts to talk about this, her defenses are up. Instead of saying, stop prostituting yourself, sex outside of marriage is wrong, Jesus says, you're seeking love and comfort and hope and satisfaction in the wrong well. (laughs) It's not that you aren't thirsty. I know that you are. But what you're really longing for is me. You're made to know my love. My comfort, my hope. 
You know, in our culture today, we've made our needs and our desires, and we kind of blend the two, whatever I desire is what I need, we've made them ultimate in our lives. And so for somebody to say no, or say I can't, to say no to what I want, is seen as an attack on my humanity, because it's an attack on my happiness. But what we will do in our lives is we'll turn to something, career, or family, or sex, or whatever it is, to, to give us the sort of satisfaction and hopefulness that we're looking for. And it becomes a God in our lives. When you trust God and follow His intentions and limits, it's going to have intentions and limits on what you do with your relationships, how you use your money, where your mind goes, and what you do with your body. But when we trust God and follow His intentions, and look to Him to meet our needs, then our souls will be satisfied. Look, I deal with disappointment. I have regret in my life. I've dealt with loss and sadness, and there's constantly fears pushing in. But each of these things are really kind of external. They're external circumstances, or it's my own sin and weakness. But you know what? Years ago, I put my trust in Jesus, and I don't have soul thirst. I honestly don't. My deepest longing is met in Christ. I've found my resting place. My heart has found its resting place, because I know that I am loved by the only one that matters. And I have shalom, peace, wholeness in my soul, my identity, my worth, my future are settled. Now, I don't always live that out. When I'm wrestling with fear because of circumstances or dealing in guilt and shame because of my sinfulness and brokenness, I start trusting in other things. I look to other wells to satisfy me, to give me peace. And I have to go back again and again to the only source that will satisfy. I have Jesus. That's right. Go to Him. Find your rest in Him. Be filled in Him. Trust Him. Stop looking at those other wells. They will not satisfy. Look, when God calls you to something, to follow Him and to trust Him, even if it means saying no to your desires, <laughs> He's not denying your humanity. And He's not trying to squash your true self. His ways are always the only way to become fully human, to be who you are made to be. Everything else is a false God and a well that will dry up. We all worship something, right? What you desire most and give yourself to is what you are worshiping. Whatever we turn to to quench our thirst, spiritually speaking. Jesus moves from talking about water to talking about worship with the woman. The time is coming and now is because of me when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The woman says, oh, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell all. It's kind of ironic, right? Like, oh, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all. Jesus says, I, in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. But when he says, I who speak to you am he, he actually 
does a double take here. Again, it's one of these phrases you, you have to pull out in the original language. Where what he actually says is that I am he is at the beginning of the sentence, kind of in that Yoda speak. But he uses a Greek phrase that is ego eimi, which means I am, the one who is speaking to you. And that word I am in that Greek is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God. When Moses meets the Lord God Almighty at the burning bush in Exodus, and he says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to set my people free, Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? What's your name, God? He says, I am who I am. And the Hebrew wording of that has became Yahweh. And the Greek translation of that is ego eimi. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and I am the I am. You are made to worship God, he's telling her, and I am the source of living water. And what happens in this conversation in this moment is something begins to bubble up inside of her. Springs of eternal life begin to bubble up inside her because the Holy Spirit is both convicting her and giving her hope. Maybe there is a way out, and this guy is not just a guy. And so what she does is she runs. She leaves her vessel there that she was supposed to get water, and she runs back to her village, the village where she's an outcast, and she calls out to everyone in the village, come and see, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And my guess is she started actually talking about the things she'd ever done. And they're like, oh, we kind of know about the things you've always done. You don't have to go into details. No, no, he knows all about this and this. Yeah, we do too. Village is small. But at this point, she doesn't care if they know. She's willing to admit, willing to open up. She's not hiding anything. She's opening up about her brokenness and shame. You know what she's doing as she says, come and see a man who told me everything? She's repenting, publicly repenting, not covering up and hiding like Adam and Eve with the fig leaves. You know the difference between a follower of Jesus and the merely religious? It's not the avoidance of sins. It's confessing them. Her defenses are down. The villagers are amazed. So they come to see Jesus. And many believe. Jesus changed everything for this woman. She enters the well cynical. She leaves joyful. She enters guarded. She leaves open. She enters with a lot of shame and guilt in her life, and she leaves free and bold. She enters thirsty. She just doesn't know it. She leaves with a newfound satisfaction. In that ancient culture, especially in Jewish culture, only certain people could testify in court, legal testimony, be a witness that was acceptable. The ones who could not testify legally, whose uh, testimony was not considered valid, first, women. Second, Samaritans. Third, notorious sinners. This woman is a woman from Samaria who's a notorious sinner. Everything about her made her the worst possible witness. And yet, according to John, she is the first missionary witness to who Jesus is. Jesus is in the business of total transformation, of upending all of the categories that any culture puts on people. And she 
moves from being an outcast to a place of honor in her village. Many people, it says, believed on account of her witness. So think about that. She went from being somebody nobody wanted to talk to, to people, to the one who, through whom they came to faith in Christ. She moves from total outcast to a place of honor in her village. And not only that, she has a place of honor in history. 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, we're talking about her. In John 4, the woman approached the well. She saw a stranger, a strange man sitting there who didn't walk away, and she turns the proverbial red light on. She had known many men in her life. And she probably thought, you know, I guess this man wants to know me too, and maybe I can get something out of it. But she didn't realize but ended up finding out Jesus already knew her. He knew her more than any man ever had. Jesus goes about uncovering her, exposing her nakedness and her shame, but not to get something from her, but instead to give her something, not to use her, but to heal and restore her. You know, it's a beautiful picture here of something that's not said which is the woman in that interaction with Jesus is said to have had five men and now is with her sixth. But then she turns to Jesus. Jesus becomes her true husband, the seventh husband. Seven, of course, was a, that meant completion. There was the seven days of creation on the seventh day God rested. John, in the Gospel of John and in Revelation, is always using numbers in the symbolic meanings in Judaism. And in that culture, seven, and seven meant complete, whole, the end, the time to rest. Jesus becomes her seventh husband, her final husband, her true husband, her complete husband, the one who gives himself completely for her without expecting anything in return. And she finally experiences love, the love of God, the love she's made for, the love she's been looking for everywhere else. You know, Jesus knows. Jesus knows us too. He knows everything you've ever done. He also knows everything that's ever been done to you. He knows all of your guilt and your shame. He knows all the pain and loss you've dealt with in life. And he wants to exchange your false wells for his living waters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our God. We are thirsty for you as if we are in a dry and weary land where there's no water. We turn to you this morning. Expose our shame and our guilt so that we can be covered in your mercy and love. Reveal to us the wells that we've been seeking and let us turn to you and find the true well, the source of life. In whose name we pray, amen.